everybody. On today's episode of Still to be Determined, we're going to be talking about how we get into space utilizing 3D printing. And no, that doesn't mean we have a 3D printer that's just creating a really, really big ladder. <laughs> it's far more complicated and actually a lot more interesting than that. So who are we? Who's going to be doing the chatting today? Well, it's me. I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I write some sci-fi. I write some stuff for kids, including my most recently released The Sinister Secrets of Singe, available in bookstores everywhere. And of course, as always, with me is my brother. He is that Matt of Undecided with Matt Farrell, which talks about emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Matt, how are you doing today? Doing great. And just like the one of the last podcasts we did, still moving into the new house. So I'm exhausted, but things are good. Yes. How about you? <laughs> the, well, you just said you're doing great and you didn't put great into air quotes. So I'll do it on your behalf <laughs> in this episode and in the one from last week. And I say that right off the cuff, smooth as silk. Look at what a pro I am referring to last week's episode. We're actually recording these out of order. So we're doing this episode first and last week's was recorded after this. So timed (laughs) and whimey stuff, but just throwing this out there. If my voice sounds, uh, more Barry whitish than normal, it's because I'm dealing with a summer cold. Fingers crossed. It's just a summer cold. I will be taking a COVID test later this afternoon. So good times all around, but for this episode, We are going to be sharing Matt's long form interview with a gentleman from NASA whose name is Paul Gradle. And Mr. Gradle is involved in the development of a new form of effectively a new form of building components of the rockets that get Mm -hmm. NASA into space, utilizing 3d printing, new materials and just a very, I mean, you, th- you think about the way we got into space in the sixties <laughs> compared to what <laughs> is being done now. It really does feel like a bunch of people in a garage with a soldering iron, <laughs> a little bit yes. of an acetylene torch and they're just yes. kind of like building things with tubes and wires yeah. and like cobbling it together. And some of the most fascinating and awe-inspiring activities that have taken place getting humans into space now seem about as safe as getting onto the Mayflower and crossing the Atlantic in the 1600s and saying like, oh yeah, wind will get us there. Like, no, no, stay where you are. (laughs) Be safe. (laughs) I'm really amazed at, at how we are now entering a phase of the development of this technology where it is impossible for me to wrap my head around what they are doing because it is so much more advanced as opposed to in the sixties where it was like, well, we've got this thing. It has enough thrust. It can go. And everybody's like, "Mm -hmm, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm, got it. Got thrust. (laughs) Yep. Now it's, new metals that have been developed by NASA. It's using technology that is still relatively new, but seemingly everywhere all at once. And it's being done in timeframes. And you'll get into this in your talk that are just mind blowing of you can print it, try it. Mm, Not enough. 
do it again. We'll be back here next week, maybe. I mean, like, really? Like, I, I like that's I like where your, we are? Your connection, your connection between the 60s and where we are now. I had the chance to go, I had a tour through the vehicle assembly building down at uh, the Kennedy Space Center. And it was a very kind of like almost religious moment for me walking into that building because it is massive. It was like walking yeah. into a cathedral and just understanding the history of what happened in that building. It was like awe-inspiring. And it's like to think about like the sheer magnitude of how they had to work to manufacture this basically a giant tube that they filled with explosive materials and then just lit it and ran away and hoped it went to right. space. <laughs> now we have- they put people on the uh, top. It feels like- That's what's most yes. amazing. And, like, do we have any volunteers? <laughs> you three, get on there. <laughs> get on top of that good luck see you later who wants to go to the moon um, and now we have and now we have what feels like a whole bunch of mad scientists in a room in a corner with like a little 3d printer trying to figure out hey look what we can do bob <laughs> we just created a better engine it's yeah. i'm oversimplifying it grossly there but it's really inspiring to see how much i don't want to call it simpler but it seems like we've kind of mastered the idea of just little rocket science and now we've come right. up with these new methodologies of how we can make it faster iterate quicker come up with new designs that make engines more efficient and new materials that make it all possible it's really kind of crazy cool what nasa is doing with their research and the kind of the ground that they're breaking kind of quietly in the background it's just kind yeah. of like this is happening and none of us really know it and it's going to have a huge impact on all of us in the future and also because of the nature of nasa being a government program yeah the, the things that they develop are made available to the public in yep. the ways that like these new materials are not proprietary corporate owned elements. These are things that are being shared widely to improve competition in the marketplace, to increase pathways to getting where everybody wants to get. It's remarkable. Mm -hmm. So with that, we're very happy to share uh, Matt's conversation with Paul Gradle, principal engineer at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center to talk about the advances they're having with 3D printing of rockets. Yes, you read that correctly, Sean. It's 3D printing of rockets and the things that they are doing are really, truly incredible. So on to the conversation. So thanks so much for Paul for being willing to speak to me today. Um, I was hoping to kind of kick things off with you just to find out just a little bit about yourself before we get into all the tech discussion. I'm curious, how did you end up where you are? Like, how did you end up at NASA doing what you're doing? Yeah, so I'm Pete. A child of the the shuttle area, so I grew up watching space shuttle launches, you know, and and even Challenger disaster still resonates with me this day, mm -hmm. um, you know. So inspired by that, um, just watch watching exploration and teachers in space, and but I think eventually I knew that I was going to be an engineer of some sort, and I remember for my 14th birthday. I asked for uh, CAD software. Um, I wanted AutoCAD. I wanted to learn how to go do CAD just because it fascinated me. And I spent a lot of my free time doing that. And eventually uh, I landed a job as a draftsman. Uh, didn't even have my driver's license uh, in a local <laughs> company that did plastic injection molding. And being there, I was fascinated by, I made these drawings and these models and then we could create these parts from this. So coming out of the experience and going into mechanical engineering school, I always thought I wanted to be in plastic injection molding um, mm -hmm. and really wasn't exposed to aerospace uh, as much. But after I did my uh, bachelor's in mechanical engineering, I went on and did an internship with NASA Glenn Research Center in Cleveland. 
And I think at that point, I caught the space bug and figured <laughs> out this is where I want to be. Um, but again, still very fascinated by the manufacturing uh, side of things. And when I was at NASA Glenn, I got involved in a lot of 3D printing of plastics. And at that time, it was still used heavily for prototyping, right? We could go create a CAD model, go make these little prototypes, get them in our hands, and then eventually make the real model out of traditional manufacturing uh, methods. But that always resonated and stuck with me on, you know, I think this might go somewhere uh, someday. Little did I know, here we are now <laughs> testing and building rockets and exploring deep space using additive manufacturing. So it's about yeah. 2004 uh, when I moved to NASA Marshall uh, Space Flight Center, the group that I'm in, we're a component technology development group for liquid rocket engines, and we're responsible for the entire life cycle of rocket components, design, analysis, build, and test. And my focus has always been on the manufacturing side. And I've gone through a lot of the challenges of traditional manufacturing, welding, brazing, machining, forgings. Um, and we had an early printer uh, at Marshall that was a metal printer back in the early 2000s. And again, we used it more for prototypes, but saw the potential of that, that, you know, maybe one day we'll build parts uh, with this. That was really more the early 2010s or so when we started getting serious uh, about that and knowing that we could get the properties and the geometries that we wanted to go build rocket engine components. Yeah, I've been, I've been becoming fascinated by additive manufacturing because it looks like it's really going to be impacting literally everything because it's changing how we can make things. But as I've been learning more and more, when I came across what you're doing at NASA with the, the additive manufacturing for rocket engines, that just kind of blew my mind that you were able to do that. And I know there's been a lot of advancements and a lot of things that you've had to do to make that possible. And so could you kind of at a high level describe what is that it's called ramped? Is that the project uh, acronym? Could you kind of describe what that is, what the project is at a high level? Yeah. So I, I think, again, early 2010s is when we started yeah. looking at metal additive manufacturing for yeah. use in rocket engines. And at the time, we made a very simple duct. Uh, although it looked simple, it was it was difficult to manufacture. <laughs> this 180-degree duct uh, had a lot of tooling to traditionally manufacture and, and bend the uh, the tubes in there and weld on flanges, a lot of inspection. So even this very simple part took six or nine months to make. And at the time, uh, there were very few metal machines available. Uh, we went with, with one of the vendors that had one of these machines who said, here's the part we'd like to go make. And we modified the design slightly for the additive. We built this part, I think it was a week or so, we built this part. And that all blew our minds. Like, wow, we spent six or nine months before making this and we just made this part in a week and we tested the part on one of our um subscale uh test stands that we have here at marshall and it performed beautifully it didn't fall apart uh and and i think that sort of set the tone on okay this is real we can make real parts from this so nasa has had several projects ramp being one the precursor to ramp was actually called uh, LCUS, low-cost upper-stage propulsion. And one of the items that we identified that really we could make use of additive manufacturing is combustion chambers. Is a traditional combustion chamber, we start out with a 
500 kilogram forging. We machine 90% of the material away. We slot all these channels in it and then we braze a jacket to the outside of it to hold these high pressure coolants. And, you know, sometimes those forgings would take three to six months to obtain the forgings. And then you have all the post processing on that, which could easily take another six months. So we're a year to make these combustion chambers. Under the Elkus project, we developed the process for printing copper, which is not an easy feat. We also did cladding of this uh, super alloy nickel-based structural jacket uh, on it. We did all that process development in six to nine months, and we tested it, and it performed really nicely. Uh, but of course, when you go through these development projects, you learn, okay, here's all the challenges and lessons. How can we go improve upon that? So eventually, following the Elkus program, uh, we established the RAMP program, which is Rapid Analysis and Manufacturing Propulsion Technology. And the purpose of RAMP was to go really large scale. The combustion chamber that we built under Elkus was about a 35,000 pound thrust class. But some of the parts that we need for our applications are 8 feet in diameter and 10 feet tall. And under RAMP, we wanted to go evolve this uh, newer technology. It's been around for a while, but it hasn't been used for small featured components like rocket nozzles, but it's a laser powder directed energy deposition. And we worked with several vendors under these public-private partnerships where NASA did a cost share with them. We invested 75%. They invested 25% on that to go evolve the processes and evolve the supply chain. Um, under ramped and you know it's a challenge to make these really large parts with these really small channels uh, in there but we have been successful at that I think to date we've hot fire tested over 20 nozzles using the process uh, wow. it's in use across the commercial supply chain and you know, that was one piece of ramped other things that additive manufacturing has evolved is the use of other advanced manufacturing too so for instance under ramped we're able to make these combustion chambers and these nozzles that are fully closed out where we can contain very high pressures in these channels but with ramped we also want to go develop composite overwraps too for these extreme temperatures because i can get a weight savings out of that so the evolution of additive manufacturing has also advanced some other manufacturing technologies because we wouldn't be able to <laughs> use these composite overwraps you know for this weight reduction without the use of additive manufacturing yeah, that's the part that I was having trouble wrapping my brain around. Was you're, you're not? It's not just oh, we just advanced the machine that is able to do the printing. It was you had to come up with the materials to print, <laughs> and then adjust the the way it's being printed, which kind of leads into you've talked about how you're able to integrate the ductwork into the structure itself, which has a kind of a profound impact on the designs that you're able to do. I'm assuming you're able to do designs that you wouldn't be able to do any other way other than additive manufacturing by doing this. Is that correct? That's right. And additive manufacturing really offers a lot of advantages. And I guess before I right. get into that, I was like the caveat, don't use additive manufacturing unless you have to. <laughs> there are certain okay. challenges that we can talk um, later, but I think it's, you know, it's easy to say additive manufacturing, I'm hearing all this stuff about it. It's a cool new kid on the block. I want to go use it for everything. Well, there's still right. a lot of great manufacturing technologies, machining that I can do much quicker for simpler parts and high right. production rates. So with additive, 
yes, we find that we can go do complexity that we've never been able to do before. And that means performance to us. I can go make these complex internal features. Uh, I can do porous structures, um, all kinds of complexity and channels, lattice structures for weight reduction. And that's definitely on the design side. But the other thing that I think I've been fascinated with has been the material side of it too, is we are able to make materials that didn't exist prior to additive. And in some <laughs> cases, they're new families of materials. And some examples are uh, GRCOP42. It's a copper chrome niobium material that we use for high conductivity, high strength for rocket combustion chambers. It was developed back in the 80s uh, by Dave Ellis up at NASA Glenn Research Center. And it was traditionally manufactured. Um, but the market for it just wasn't there because it was so expensive to make and nobody wanted to take that on. Well, with, with additive, it simplified everything because it starts out as a powder and an additive, <laughs> we need a powder. Uh, so we're able to evolve that material, which has been used in a lot of development applications and, and even recently flown uh, earlier this year. And then we're working some other new materials, these oxide dispersion strengthening materials. Uh, one example is GRX-810, also developed up at NASA Glenn Research Center. We're able to go to extreme temperatures that some of these traditional materials couldn't withstand. And again, only enabled because of additive manufacturing. So I think definitely design side of it, the material side of it. But then one thing that maybe I assumed in, in the discussion is the economic side of it is yes. traditionally making combustion chambers, right? Took six months, 12 months in some cases, assuming that I could get my forgings and, you know, machining goes well and my brazing and welding and everything goes well on that. Well, with additive manufacturing, we're able to get an order of magnitude or better in many cases on lead times. So parts that were taking me months or years to make, I can make in days and months now. And okay. with that comes huge cost savings, right? Because yeah. A lot of the parts we're working with, aerospace, nothing is is cheap. <laughs> Everything from our large components to the fasteners and seals that we use are all specialty. So some of these components can be hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars. So even if I get a few percent cost savings on it, that's huge. With additive, there's many cases where we see 50% or greater cost savings. Whoa, <laughs> I didn't realize it was that big. Yeah. Cause I mean, I mean, we're talking about the pros right now. We'll get, we'll get to some of the challenges in a second, but like in the pros, it sounds like it, you're able to do designs you couldn't do any other way. So you can get very complex. Uh, you're reducing costs and lead time. Uh, what other kind of pros would you call out about being able to do it this way? I, I think there's, you know, a new unique designs that we can do, not just in the complexity side of it, but now we can go locally add and change materials as needed. Um, as you look at some of these components, there's some areas where I need high conductivity, other areas that I need high strength, um, other areas where I need corrosion resistance on that. And with additive, I can locally deposit these materials. Uh, certainly we could do that with traditional manufacturing, but that meant I was using joining operations and everything had to be leak free. Um, additive, 
you know, we have this unique opportunity there uh, to to go build with new materials, a combination of materials. But with that, I think, you know, maybe this gets a little bit of the challenge, I could see it as a positive and negative, is we have to go train our workforce to do some of that. We need new thought processes for how we go about designing some of these parts. And I think there's definitely a pro to that is because designers are not limited as much as they were before. Like if you can go dream this up and actually produce the CAD model uh, for it, you can likely go print this. I mean, within some print limitations, right? But now I just have this, this huge flexibility there. The con of that is I have to go train people, you know, to do that. And sometimes some of our visions in our head, you know, may be really difficult to get in the CAD software because they are so <laughs> complex. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's the challenge is kind of like it's so new that there's still not a lot of knowledge and experience out there yet around being able to perfect this stuff easily and quickly. There's there's that, a learning curve. It sounds like that's right. And and with this, you know, we've sort of shattered some of the traditional roles in design and manufacturing, where traditionally I'd have a design engineer that would hand the design off to an analyst to go look at the structures and the thermal and a lot of the detailed engineering disciplines. And now we hand it off to a manufacturing engineer and they hand it off to a quality engineer. You know, at some point right. we get materials involved in that. With additive, a lot of those roles had combined because my design engineer is creating the model of which is being used for manufacturing later. So we like to train a lot of our design engineers now in metallurgy. They need to understand that if I have thick portions and thin portions of the part, the microstructure is going to be different. They need to understand, you know, the thermal physical properties of additive parts and you know, mechanical properties are different. We can't just assume that they're wrought properties or cast properties um, on that. So like you just mentioned that, yes, it is new. There's a lot of learning that we have to do, and it comes from not just the design side, but the material side, the analysis side, you know, the build side of it, because now I have to control every aspect of that, the parameters that I'm using to build, the the right. feedstock, whether it be powder or wire, and the post-processing side of it too. Because I think one thing that's often overlooked in additive manufacturing is I go build this part in two days. Awesome. Now what do I do with it? And in most cases, I can't just take that part and plug it directly in my assembly. I need to go remove powder. I need to do heat treatments. I need to do final machining on that part. So even though a part may have taken me two or three days to build, I might have several weeks or several months of post-processing. Yeah. And I think there's a so lot of stuff that's overlooked, you know, in that process that we tend to oversimplify. And, you know, we use our, uh, our desktop printers and off pops the part and we hold yeah. it in our hand with metal parts. It's a lot different. Well, that actually raises a question for me because like on home 3D printers, there's a problem where like, you're building a large part and it may kind of warp and deform as it's printing because of the way it's heating and cooling and it's not doing it evenly. Do you run into problems like that printing large rocket parts? Do you have to account for how something might be shifting or warping as it's being printed? Absolutely. When we're working with metal, really it's a micro welding 
process. And with welding, you're always going to have distortion and residual stresses in there. So any of the metal additive manufactured parts that we're making, yes, we have tremendous amounts of residual stresses. And in some cases, we have to adjust the designs for the print operation. We have designed some parts and we've printed them and they have actually separated from the build rate or we have huge cracks in there from these residual stresses. So right. one area that is advancing uh, in additive manufacturing is the simulation of some of these parts is we can take the CAD model and we can go simulate different build tool paths on it and you know the heating and the cooling that it's gonna see and figure out maybe is there a better way to build this by adjusting my tool path? Maybe there's a different orientation or maybe I just need to redesign some of the parts. Um, now, the advantage of additive is I can go through some of those iterations quickly. I, it might take me a few days to build a part and you say, that failed. You know, we, we had too many residual stresses in there. Let's redesign it and we can go back to the printer a week later uh, on that. But I think a lot of the stuff that you see on your home-based plastic printers, we definitely experience those challenges probably in order of magnitude more, you know, even when it comes to support <laughs> yeah. structures, right? We have to figure out the best way to do support structures and the best orientation for these parts. We still have to adhere to some of the, what we call design for additive manufacturing DAM rules, where there's certain build orientations, certain angles uh, that I need to, um, you know, adhere to, uh, in that, uh, there's, um, you know, even like build plates, uh, locations where I may have challenges, uh, on that build plate design, you know, that's something that is definitely, uh, we take into consideration. And one thing that I think is also worth noting that I've sort of generalized metal additive manufacturing, uh, in, in this discussion so far, but there's really more than 10 metal additive manufacturing processes. And each one of them is very unique. They all exist because there's a need for them. Some of them right. are really high deposition rates, but low resolution. Others are really fine resolution, but low deposition rates. So they complement all of each other well, and we use all of that. There's not just one particular process. So if we've talked about like, there's cost benefits, there's iteration benefits. There's all these benefits we talked about before the actual like rocket engine itself that you might print, what kind of benefits are you seeing from performance by versus a traditionally built rocket design? Well, I think one of the things that, that really sticks out to me is the iterations of the design. And mm -hmm. again, this is was probably overlooked in the early days of additive manufacturing. So we're thinking, oh, we want to go make these parts for production. But now we're able to make very early rapid prototypes of these that we can go test and I can do this in a matter of weeks. I can change my design and I can be back in the test stand in a couple of weeks. That has radically changed how we're doing things. Traditionally, it would take me nine months to a year. I would build one combustion chamber, one injector. If something went wrong, I would have to delay my test program. So we were a year, two years for some of these test programs. Now I can go into a test program in a matter of weeks, and again, make those design changes. We call this the design fail fix cycle, or go design it, go build it, put it the test stand. Things don't always go as planned. Sometimes they go 
horribly wrong. Um, we have failed right. parts on the <laughs> test stand, but I can learn from those and I can make these quick design iterations. And again, it's not uncommon that we're doing these in a matter of weeks. And I think one thing where this has really become apparent, uh, which is you know really fascinating for me, is how we're training the new workforce with that as well for rocket applications. You see a lot of university rocket teams that are now design, building, and testing small rocket <laughs> engines because of additive manufacturing. So now all these students have hands-on experience. So when they're going to commercial space or coming to NASA, they have done this. They have gone through the trials and tribulations of, of testing and actually brought their designs to life. So I think that's you know, definitely one of the advantages um, uh, of this. But we also find other advantages too in specialty tooling. You know, sometimes we need certain fixtures for our test stand that may be difficult to machine or long lead on that. And I can go print um, some of these. You know, the performance side of it, again, we can go make unique designs that we couldn't uh, produce before that has complex internal passages or unique injector patterns to increase the performance. Um, and then, you know, one thing that, that I mentioned earlier about with the complexity and the novel materials has actually brought about new propulsion concepts. One of the programs we're working right now is rotating detonation rocket engines. And these were conceptualized 40 years ago, but we really didn't have the technology to bring the, to make these real, to actually go build these. But now that we can go build these complex passages and we can use novel materials like GRCOP42 and GRX810, we have tested some rotating detonation rocket engines. We got 100 seconds on one of these demonstrator engines. We have a ongoing program that we're going to do larger thrust classes. Now with these engines, we get a 30% performance improvement, 20 to 30% over traditional engines. <laughs> Which That's is, incredible. you know, fantastic because I remember back in, you know, shuttle days and some of the other development programs, we would chase after a half percent or one percent performance improvement, which was huge. And now you're talking in order of magnitude more than that. So additive manufacturing is definitely changing <laughs> the way that we can, you know, think about some of these advanced propulsion concepts too. I mean, that, that ties right back into what we were saying before. It's, it not only lowers costs for the iteration and production of these designs, but you're creating engines, like you mentioned, we knew how to do, we knew what it was 40 years ago, but we couldn't do it. And now we can do it. And with those gains, it means less rocket fuel to get a rocket to space, which also reduces the cost of sending something into space. So it's like all these things kind of add up to potential great cost reductions for space exploration. Absolutely. And I think that's something yeah. that it propagates, um, you know, the, the butterfly effect in a sense that yeah. we do these developments and you see them spread across industry and we see other adoption in energy and oil and gas with some of these novel materials that we're developing, um, which is one of the goals of NASA too, right? We want to, yeah. we want to go take on some of this research and development that that companies may not be doing and try to infuse these into commercial apps, applications. Of course, we're focused on the aerospace sector. Um, and I want to backtrack a little bit that I do think on the aerospace side, particularly in the launch vehicle 
industry, the additive manufacturing has absolutely enabled that, which in turn enables more launches, more satellites, you know, low Earth orbit access, and then deep space exploration from just these new technologies. Because there's a lot yeah. of companies that have either been established or have evolved because of additive manufacturing. They now have access to make combustion chambers and injectors and these rocket engines that were specialty manufacturing processes 20 years ago that only, you know, two or three companies could do. So, you know, from yeah. that, we see this propagation across the industry of now there are all these launch companies, um, you know, that are able to, again, launch new satellites and, um, you know, we have ferry flights now to the International Space Station. Um, some of that is enabled by additive manufacturing. And again, when we look at deep space space exploration, where we're going to go back to the moon and set up a permanent presence there, and then eventually go on to Mars, that will be enabled by additive manufacturing. And not just on the mm -hmm. propulsion side, but lunar habitats and Martian habitats. And, you know, some of the infrastructure will definitely be additively manufactured uh, on that so yeah. it's uh you know as much as uh, i like to think about this stuff it, it hurts your head a little bit too because there's so many opportunities out there and and of course we want to work it all but <laughs> there's like so well, much time I mean, that's actually one of the things i wanted to hit on with you because you, you kind of already touched on it a couple times but like you've mentioned universities you've mentioned private industry nasa isn't doing this just for nasa nasa is working as a partner with private industry and colleges and universities to try to kind of unlock new paths beyond what you're doing day to day. Could you kind of talk a little bit about that, about how that relationship works with universities and the private industry? Yeah, absolutely. So we are taxpayer funded, right? So we work for the American people and really the world too. I think that is one of the exciting roles about working at NASA is we inspire is we inspire university students, we inspire companies, you know, we inspire the average person uh, too. And and I don't take that lightly by any means that, that I think about every day uh, with this. I think from an additive manufacturing perspective, yes, we partner with uh, research institutions, we partner with universities and academia, and we partner with industry, and each one of them play a very unique role. There's a lot of projects and research that we want to do that we may not have bandwidth to do. Um, so we set these up as student projects and we have undergraduates and masters and PhDs involved in some of the fundamental material science and establishing material properties and publishing a lot of this data. And those students are also exposed to, again, real world NASA problems. We give them here's the challenge we have, you know, here's the time period that we'd like to go solve this in. Uh, I sit down with a lot of students probably every two weeks or so, and we get updates uh, from them. So, you know, they're not just working on busy work. We are using all that data. So we're training the next generation through the universities and they're supplying a lot of critical data for our projects. Another unique role of, of NASA is we get to see everything that's going on across the industry. So we get to see all work with all the commercial space companies, a lot of the specialty manufacturing uh, companies. So we get to see the challenges 
And usually when I start to see two or three companies have the same problem, we say, okay, let's go establish a project around this. Let's go stand up the ramped project or another project because this is an issue that we see. And one of the goals of companies are to build their hardware, launch vehicles and create revenue, right? You have to exist as a company by creating revenue. So R&D may not necessarily be real high in their portfolio. NASA can take on that R&D and we can engage universities. And ultimately our goal is to be able to set up commercial supply chains for this. Is if we develop some unique process at NASA, great, but I want to be able to show a infusion to industry and make it accessible so that we can go buy, buy parts um, or processes from these companies, but universities can, other commercial space companies and aerospace companies, oil, gas, energy, they can all use these materials, these processes. Um, so again, I think that's something that we think about a lot in terms of you know, what is the value that the taxpayers are getting uh, out of this? And, and I think it's tremendous because we're doing a lot of development that we see, you know, five, 10, 20 fold returns on investments uh, with the commercial space sector. And, you know, I think it's a really great role for us because we can, we can dig in, right? We understand the challenges of space flight and the requirements, and we're going to go about this methodically but, you know, we can train students, you know, on that thought process too, the systems engineering and, and how you establish these, these big projects and the little pieces that fit into that. And additive manufacturing, there, you alluded to this earlier, there is so much to do here. So trying to pull together <laughs> all these pieces of the puzzle, you know, is certainly challenging, but I think we're chipping away slowly um, at that through these public private partnerships and with you know, different grants and, and funding that NASA has provided, as well as getting our hands dirty too. We want to be involved right. in the work. We don't want to just be handing off a contract and say, okay, send us your results when you're done. We need to understand the processes and how we go about doing that. Because another side of NASA too is, you know, not just being a player in the game, um, but we're also helping to be the you know, the commissioner of the the team of sorts, right? We are right. setting some of the rules in industry in terms of standards and certification. And if we're going to do that and establish those rules, we need to understand the details of it. So NASA has taken on a lot of roles as well in terms of certification. Um, we've developed some very extensive documents for how do you certify additively manufactured parts for human spaceflight. Right. First and foremost of anything we do is our astronauts have to be safe. So by establishing some of that methodology and that criteria, um, you know, we've put a baseline out there saying industry, here's here's the, the guidelines that you need to adhere to. Well, you've already kind of semi touched on this already, but one of my final questions I had for you was why should the average Joe on the street care about the work that NASA is doing around additive manufacturing? the rocket designs, the new materials that have been developed, why should just the average Joe care? Like why, like you've already kind of somewhat touched on it. So it's a little bit of a leading question, but I do have, I'm curious what your take is on that. I think there's a lot of reasons. I, I'd say one, what I said earlier is we inspire, right? Humans want to explore. 
we want to go back to the moon, set up a permanent presence there, go to Mars and, you know, understand, you know, our, our solar system. And NASA, you know, has continuously inspired. And it doesn't matter where you're from around the world, you know, who you are. I think you look at some of these images from James Webb Space Telescope or you watch a launch. I think everybody just sort of gets that moment of peace that you can, you know, wonder what is out there. So I think that is one of the roles that NASA plays in all this. I think when you dig down further, you know, to explore, we have to lower the cost of exploration and additive manufacturing certainly helps with that. But then there's all these spinoffs that we don't even know sometimes until we get into it. When we develop a new material for a specific application on a rocket engine, and then we get contacted by oil and gas and energy industry saying this material will help me increase performance a lot you know those are spin-offs that we never planned for but definitely are exciting and i think we have dozens of examples of of things like that across things that that nasa has you know developed because of our specific needs and then you know 20 or 30 years later you see okay we have microelectronics because of some of the work on the apollo program and we have yeah. You know, cell phones because of some of the communication um, developments. And we have new materials that now spread across the energy sector, which decrease energy costs. So I think those are a lot of the side benefits uh, that, you know, taxpayers and, and the average person may not necessarily realize. I think they look at, you know, well, we put all this money into NASA. And, and if you look at it from the overall government budget, we're a very, very small piece yeah. of that. Yes. But the return on investment is is huge. And I think we can't necessarily put a price on, you know, the dreams and the inspiration of looking at these fantastic images from James Webb and, you know, just allowing kids to, you know, dream of they want to explore space and they want to, you know, be an astronaut uh, one day. Because from that, you know, whether they become astronauts or not, we're probably going to end up with a whole bunch of new engineers that are going to engineer new launch vehicles or, you know, other critical products that we're going to need to move forward, you know, in society. So I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, benefits that we just, we don't, necessarily realize it's like planting a seed and watching it grow into something new and exciting and unexpected it's like your the inspiration i think is a great way to put that it's 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 a seed of inspiration that you're you're working on so that kind of covers all the major topics i was hoping to cover with you is is there anything else that you'd want to touch on no i think again with with nasa you know we're we're publicly funded, right? So a lot of the data that we're producing, we're trying to get it out to industry and academia and make it available. Uh, you know, we encourage those conversations and collaborations and public-private partnerships. And, you know, we're always happy to talk additive manufacturing and, uh, and geek out <laughs> on it. So. Yeah, I love geeking out on this stuff. It's, it's so fascinating. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me, Paul. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. 
Our thanks to Paul Gradle for taking the time to talk to Matt and our thanks to all of you for checking out this conversation. And as always, we invite everybody to jump into the comments and let us know what you think. Do you have any follow-up questions for Mr. Gradle that Matt didn't get to? Do you have any questions for Matt about what it was like to talk to him or about what the future may hold? Matt may have some further insights beyond this conversation. So please jump into the comments and let us know. As always, your comments are a huge part of the program. We appreciate your taking the time to watch and also to give us the feedback on each episode and help us steer the ship a little bit and take us into new territory. So please do jump into the comments. So Matt, with your impending move, which is the reason why we are recording the way we are right now, it looks like your calendar will be kind of cleared once you move into your new place and we should anticipate a new video in the last week of August from the undecided channel. In the meantime, you've got us here. You can jump into the comments on our episodes here and Matt, what do you have coming up upon your return? What are you going to be talking about? Oh, there's a lot of different videos we got in the works right now. Um, there's uh, some about a mistake I made on my new home. <laughs> kind of decision that's been having kind of a ripple effect of like, oh, crap. Um, there's another video about uh, solar's meteoric rise and how everybody, whether you were for solar or against solar, everybody's predictions of how it would perform by this point in history were all wrong. Um, and it's kind of a fascinating how like even the people that are the biggest proponents of solar just completely got their estimates wrong. Um, mm. So I, there's a video diving into all that. That sounds really interesting. And I'm really curious about what the insight is, but we won't ruin the point of the video here. So <laughs> we'll wait for that one to drop. Thank you everybody yep. for checking us out. And don't forget, if you'd like to support the show, please consider reviewing us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever it was you found this podcast, go back there, leave a review. Please don't forget to subscribe and please do tell your friends. Word of mouth is a huge way that you can support the channel. But if you'd like to more directly support us, you can click the join button on YouTube or go to stilltbd.fm, click the become a supporter button there. It allows you to throw some coins at our heads. We appreciate the bruises and we make the podcast and everybody's happy if a little bruised. All of those are great ways to support the channel. Thank you everybody for listening or watching and we'll talk to you next time.